passage that we'll look at and a reason for it uh, this, this morning. Um, have you ever thought, have you ever wondered about, um, in our county, we have an Orthodox church seminary in our county. Does anyone know what it's called? It's called St. Tikhon's Russian Orthodox Seminary. Uh, it has a historic uh, uh, a birth as well. And so we're going to be looking at some of that here today too. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was told. Um, so have you ever heard of the, uh, the Middle Ages being called the Dark Ages? Why do you suppose it's called the Dark Ages? They believe in Halloween? <laughs> no electricity. There you go. Excellent. You get an A-plus for that one. <laughs> um, really, the, the, the Middle Ages were called dark in the 18th and 19th centuries. It became characterized as a common way of talking disparagingly about Christianity and suggesting that perhaps Christianity effectively closed people's interest in seeking knowledge. And so it actually was a way of, of, of slandering the, the church during what is, to, what is called the Middle Ages, but I think we're going to try to put that to bed and to rest actually a little bit today as well. And I would like to assert as we get started here that the Middle Ages are not the Dark Ages. Uh, there were some pretty significant uh, things that occurred uh, during a period that we would call, it's probably a thousand year period from about 500 to 1500 AD, um, we, there were a lot of innovations that took place during this time period. And of consequence, our liberties and freedom from the state, does not always work out perfectly, I understand, uh, was established by the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta was an agreement between the king and the people that they, the king would not oppress the people without representation. That was something that developed during the Middle Ages as well. And um, that there were many hospitals that started to develop during this time period as well. And so there was an interest in caring for the sick and making sure medical uh, knowledge was expanding. Uh, many uh, universities that are well-known even today uh, found their origin during this time period. Oxford, uh, Cambridge, uh, the University of Paris, uh, many continental universities uh, started to pop up all over the place, and there were many church leaders who wrote significant works that were intended to encourage their people to have a vibrant and real relationship with God. Now, we know that there are aspects of Catholic teaching that occurred during the Middle Ages that weren't helpful, but in the mix of that, there were those who were trying to be sincere and genuine in their faith, and so it would be uh, uh, bad for us really to kind of kind of paint that whole time period as being dark and ignorant and, and that type of thing. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of the developments uh, that occur uh, in, the, in the West um, I want to talk a little bit about monasticism and evangelism. And uh, I, had, I had mentioned that uh, the Catholic Church gained 
significant wealth. Um, when the Roman Empire started to crumble, the church had already established a tight relationship with the state. And as the political elements of the empire were starting to break down, the wealth began to be transferred over to the church. So large tracts of land, a lot of fortress-like castles uh, that were in the, the, the mountains of northern Italy began to be transferred into the hands of the Catholic Church to act as a protector for the people. And uh, during this time period, uh, rich pasture lands uh, were, were taken, uh, basically given to the church for protection. And they, a lot of them became retreat centers. Uh, that's a nice way of talking about a monastery. A retreat center, uh, it was designed in order to, to allow people to get away from the world and try to implement spiritual disciplines in such a way that... Uh, they could have a, I talked about this morning in the sermon, you know, giving your, your, your life, your soul, your all to the Lord. In an idealistic way, these, these uh, monasteries were designed to try to help people find freedom from the worldly effects and devote themselves entirely to the Lord. But it's not actually a realistic, that's not very realistic though, is it? Um... I, often, I sometimes uh, have enjoyed, in times gone by, going to camp, for example. And a week at camp is a nice experience for a kid. And sometimes we imagine it would be nice. It, it wouldn't be great just to be at camp every day of the year. And, 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 and you know, the spiritual high of being at camp, of being in a community where everyone's kind of focused on the same thing, is kind of an ideal that's not very realistic. <laughs> Uh, even going to a Christian college, um, you can get into a bubble, if you will. And I experienced that also when I was at a Christian college, this experience where it was uplifting and encouraging, but it wasn't very realistic because you have to go out and engage with sinners who are going to test your faith and see whether or not you have real faith or not. Yet there are pluses and minuses to these established orders and the church, uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, started to establish these monasteries as an as a oasis points throughout the empire to help encourage people. And um, these were all modeled after a man by the name of Benedict. He established a rule of discipline where he, he, wrote, he had a book of a program guide for every day. He established periods uh, in the Benedictine rule, there were 12 worship services every day. There was even one at 2 a.m. that everyone was, the bell would ring and everyone would get up out of their cells and out of their cells and come the rooms and they would come and meet and, and, and have prayer together at 2 in the morning. But they were structured in such a way that people would, would engage in farming and they would engage then in, in prayers and worship and engage in song and also engage in theology and working at theology. Several of these, I'm just going to just cover, I'm just going to explain briefly some of these um, different orders that popped up. The Cistercians uh, were founded in 16, or excuse me, in 1098. Um, they were a 
movement of, of um, monks that uh, their aim was to reform the will of those who joined their order. They um, really were focused. They knew that people had a hard time uh, carrying out the responsibilities of their faith, and they designed a system that would help reform the will of their adherents. Um, they did. Uh, they were founded by um, Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, maybe you have heard of Bernard of Clairvaux. We actually sing one of his songs, usually around Good Friday. Um, <clears throat> do we know the song, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded? That song was written by Bernard of uh, Clairvaux. There's a, there was another order that popped up called the Franciscans. They're sometimes known as the Grey Friars. And they aimed in their group to try to encourage their followers to develop humility. Um, they were very focused upon the appearance of pride in the bishops that they had seen, that there, were, there was active worldliness that they were starting to crop up, and they said, okay, we need to leave this, and we need to establish a following of people who will devote themselves to pursuing humility. And the Franciscans, uh, one of their prominent leaders um, was Francis of Assisi. You know that name? Um, he is also sometimes called the patron saint of the forest of animals. Um, but it, I think that speaks to the, 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 the idealism of, of humility and finding friendship with all kinds of people. Um, and he, interestingly enough, was very interested in trying to evangelize Muslims. And he engaged them with Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And he engaged um, and sent uh, preachers to go out uh, to try to evangelize them. Maybe you've heard of the Dominicans. The Dominican orders, um, and they focused on training their monks to be preachers. They wanted to educate the populace to make sure that the the lay people would know the scriptures, and they would teach and they would preach. Um, one of the most famous uh, Dominicans was uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he he, we'll get to him in a little bit later. Um, the Augustinians. Um, followed a more simple approach. They didn't meet 12 times uh, for worship, but they retired and were much more interested in finding solitude and having a more uh, a prayer-oriented uh, relationship with God. And that was founded um, in 1244, uh, taking Augustine's rule that he had developed one of the most famous uh, Augustinian monks was Martin Luther, and he didn't end up being a very good representation in time, and we'll eventually get to him. So I want to just say, well, what, well why am I talking about the, mo the monasteries? These were, when, the, when they helped establish structure for Europe, the Roman Empire used to have that structure, and when the collapse of the political leadership broke down, there was a need for other groups of people to step up. And they were kind of like the salt and the pepper throughout Europe to try to preserve um, uh, Christianity within the continent since they couldn't rely upon the Roman Empire. <clears throat> Any questions so far? As I get a drink of water or coffee. Any questions so far?
Yes. Not that I'm aware of. I think that there was, um, obviously when, within human nature, there tends to be some political dynamics. <clears throat> and one, one, one order was kind of established because they saw a need for the church to pick up, for example, the humility. They felt like the, 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 the clerics and the priests and the bishops were becoming too worldly. And assuming a lot of that power structure that Rome once had, and so there was a need for reform and reformation. Right, right. So um, for nearly 300 years, uh, the, the church filled a void for the, what was left over of the Roman Empire. But there was always a desire to revive and centralize the Roman Empire again. And particularly with the East and West conflicts, um, there was a desire that there could be potentially a new emperor that might unite all the different political classes in the German uh, provinces and all the, the French, Italians. And in 778, uh, Charles the Great, also known as Charlemagne, was very aggressive and he won a number of military victories and did unite large sections of Europe. And his plan was to remake the empire underneath of the banner of Christianity. And he wasn't, his ideals were good, but yet using the power of the sword, he, could, he forced people to convert into Christianity and to be baptized under the threat of the sword. And I think it's symptomatic of kind of the era in which people became confused between what is the true church and what is an organized um, political type of a church. And uh, there was a lot of stress that was placed upon the East and West by his actions. And Charlemagne, as he uh, ascended to great prominence and power on Christmas Day in 800 AD, he was crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Empire by the Pope, Leo III. And, uh, and it's pretty, it, it, it's interesting because it was remarkable because the Pope crowned the king and then the king bowed to the Pope. And that set off a controversy as to, okay, now, what is the relationship between the state and the church? And the East looked down upon um, the West for taking an active role as the church to crown the emperor. Um, and uh, that really did lead to a schism between East and West. We're going to talk a little bit about that now. Um, there's a picture of the territory that would be considered the, the Empire of Charlemagne, that kind of that brownish area. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and the Great Schism. I had mentioned that in our county we have a representation of the Orthodox Church found in St. Tikhon's. And so, just going to, some of this that we will be talking about is very relevant to their history. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the politics and what fostered the division. I kind of already alluded to this. But in 1054, it's traditionally regarded as the, the breaking point between the East and the West. 
And uh, one summer afternoon, the story is told that a representation from the Pope in Rome arrived in Constantinople at the central church, the Hagia Sophia Church, the Church of the Holy Wisdom. And uh, they had within their possession a, the, the Roman bull, the, the, the edict from the Pope. And as it was, thank you, you can hear it. So they placed a bull of excommunication on the altar and they marched out of the door and a deacon saw what was going on, grabbed the scroll and ran out and tried to say, take this back to Rome. We don't, this is not helpful. This is not good. They knew what was happening. And the the representation, uh, Cardinal Humbert, took the scroll and dropped it in the street and said, it is done, we're moving on. And it's, it's considered to be the time, and what we, I think we want to ask ourselves, okay, so what, what, what led to this kind of like break that occurred? Um, and so let's just think a little bit about that. The political differences between the two sides was starting to be quite significant. I had talked about Constantine as the first Christian Roman emperor. Back in his day, he relocated the capital of the empire from Rome over to Constantinople. And when he did that, the way he governed was very different than prior emperors had, had governed. He saw himself as the protector of the church. And he was the one who organized all the, all the church leaders to come together to, to discuss and define what is the Godhead, the Trinity. And so that he recognized that within Christianity there was lots of different opinions. And he felt like very personally anxious that the church have a unity, a doctrinal unity. And so he used his political power to, to call in all the church leaders to discuss this. And he, he had no problem of thinking of himself as a Roman emperor, but also as a Christian emperor. And so he, the power, center of power really uh, came together in him. And some of his uh, followers, uh, uh, Julian, uh, excuse me, Justinian, was very interested in maintaining a unity within the Eastern Church. And uh, he also followed in the same footsteps. And it set up a trajectory to say the Eastern Church looked at the emperor as being the protector and not one that they would ever crown. And so when the Western Church said, we're going to crown, we're going to assert our centralized authority over top of the emperor, the Eastern Church said, that's totally inappropriate. There's no way the church should be doing that. And they considered it a much more beneficial arrangement for the emperor to call the church together to say, you solve doctrinal problems amongst yourselves as a group of people rather than a centralized authority telling the church what they should believe. So the pope assumed a lot more power and even put that over top of the emperor. And that 
that started to create a real strain within the relationships between East and West. There's also cultural and linguistic uh, differences. Um, um, I'm not gonna. I won't get into that too deeply. But they, the way they looked at the gospel was just slightly different. I'll just simply say it this way: within the Western tradition, there's a great emphasis upon the atonement of Christ, in which we we recognize that the how Jesus, his sacrifice, atones and satisfies God's justice is a significant part about how we talk and think as Westerners. In the East, they tend to think in terms of how is there restoration of humanity? How does the atonement restore and reform people? And it's a, it's a, it's a difference of perspective. Um, they will talk about the gospel as, as a rebirth, recreation, and eventually a transfiguration of the soul to, to become unified with God himself. That's how they thought. And when you're in that way of thinking and you're trying to communicate with people who are not thinking in the same categories, the conversation gets difficult because you're not speaking the same language. And so that put a lot of pressure. I really already mentioned the papacy as well. Um, the Western Church really saw the kingdom of Peter as being supreme, and the succession from Peter in Rome was a significant uh, point of conflict. Um, Matthew 20, uh, excuse me, Matthew 16, 18, uh, was used as a, a, a defense to say, you know, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so the Western Church said, see, this is this is this is where it comes from. That's why we have authority. Whereas the Eastern Church said, no, um, it doesn't refer to Peter alone, but rather it refers to the confession that Peter made, an agreement with that confession. And so they were very, very, um, they wanted a decentralized uh, uh, figurehead in their church. Um, celibacy. Um, this is a kind of an interesting uh, uh, turn in the East. Uh, priests are permitted to be married. Um, but in the West, uh, priests are not permitted to be married. And that's a big difference between the Russian Orthodox, for example, or Eastern Orthodox. You'll see them with children. Abby teaches some of their kids piano lessons um, uh, as they, they go to the seminary there. Um, but celibacy actually became a political arrangement, a pragmatic arrangement to preserve the wealth in the Western Church. Because the church had received lots of wealth, there was concern that if there were heirs of some of these bishops, that the wealth of the church would be transferred away from the church into and, and scattered. And so by limiting uh, the, the, limiting the, um, the family there, they thought that they were going to preserve a lot of their, their wealth. Um, during the 7th and 8th centuries, um, icons were a debate uh, between East and West. And um, that is an icon on the screen. Um, it has a, uh, a gold glow. And it's, these, these, are, these are designed to represent uh, 
biblical figures for humanity to be able to relate to. Now, I look at that and say, I can't relate to that. Um, and this, this largely goes back to how the Greeks thought about an image. They thought that when Christ came, he was coming to restore God's image that's in man, to recreate it and to deify it, to, be, to make it holy. And they taught that when you look at an image, you're just looking at the image. You're not actually looking at the essence. You're not looking at the real, the real thing. And so they, they, they did like a sidestep to say, we can, we can use this as a tool in order to move our minds to think about Jesus. And that's a, a representation of Jesus there. So when they pray, they use it as a tool in order to move their minds to think about the one who is real and not the, not the picture. However, you can see how that can create problems. And so there is the struggle and the disagreement that occurred uh, through those couple of centuries. And finally, the, earth, uh, the Eastern Church actually at times vacillated back and forth between whether or not they would use these or not. Uh, but finally, eventually, they decided that it would be okay to use them. Um, another debate that occurred between East and West was over the, the doctrinal statement that was made about the Trinity. We discussed uh, a couple of weeks ago how the Council of Nicaea established a, a very clear statement about the Father, the Son, but it had a very simple statement about the Holy Spirit. Well, I think on your handout it says, um, uh, there's a short summary there that's given of the article on the Spirit. And the Western Church said, no, we want to include a statement that says that the, that the Spirit proceeds not just from the Father, but it also proceeds from the Son. And so they wanted to add, a, add this little phrase, which in the Latin is filioque, it just means, and from the Son. They just wanted this one little piece added into it. Eastern Church said, no, 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 we don't want this. Um, we, we, we only see um, the Bible being clearly stating from John 15, 26, that, that I will send the Spirit from the Father. And, and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't see that it also being coming from the Son, too. Um, but that really also did put a lot of, of, of uh, weight upon the church, and I don't want to say that this wasn't, this was a, not a frivolous discussion, but um, after the creed had been validated and reaffirmed in 381, there was a statement that was made at that time by the council that there would be no more changes made to the creed in the future, that this was the faith once for all handed down and they felt that Rome was, was not abiding by the council's decision. And so that put a lot of strain upon the relationship. Okay, let's just think a little bit about um, differences of doctrinal teaching. They, um, they, believed, they believed that uh, you can't really adequately use words to describe who God is. They used a form of way of talking about God in the negative. Well, we, we can't describe, we don't know what holiness is, but we know that it's not sin. And so through using a negative, 
you would kind of, kind of come around to some sort of a description of what God is like. And they had a phrase that, that uh, God is uh, an unfathomable mystery. You can't adequately talk about who God is. And so they had a kind of a, a reserved distance, whereas the West tended to try to define and try to articulate what God was like. And they uh, had a, a reticence to do that. They also had a high reverence for the, the early fathers, um, Early church fathers had writings, and they began to establish a, a method of interpreting Scripture that would say, we're not going to accept any new teachings of Scripture unless we can find it correlated with something that the fathers had said. So if you can, you can articulate something from Scripture, you also have to find independent confirmation from one of the older fathers that validates your interpretation of Scripture. And that was a particular... Um, uh, feature of, of their their practice. Um, Pentrarchy, which means the rule of five. They they again didn't want they didn't want a centralized bishop. Instead, they they felt like the historic church uh, intended that there would be five different uh, places in which a bishop would reside. Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria. And they said, if we go beyond that and centralize it, then we're going to deviate from the faith, and we need to make sure we don't do that. I talked about uh, theosis, which is deification, earlier. They talked about how that the human soul is, is to be recreated gradually over time, and eventually you, you come into a union with God uh, directly. All right, any questions there? No? All right. I'll just uh, mention, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Crusades and the rise of Islam. Um, Islam was uh, founded in the 7th century and started to proselytize with a sword. They started to. Um, they started in Arabia, and they started to expand outward and westward, and began to put a lot of pressure upon the Eastern Church. And um, the East and the West recognized that this was a significant problem. And when Jerusalem fell to the Muslims, um, there was a uh, kind of a more organized effort by the Church to try to liberate Jerusalem from the oppressors. And uh, Islam um, is organized around five pillars. Does anyone know any of the pillars of Islam? Of Islam? No? Okay. Sorry. Um, yes, that's the first pillar. We have one God who is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That, well, that, that's the singular. They kind of couple that together as the singular pi pillar. And they have a second pillar is a prayer. They have five daily prayers that are required of faithful uh, Muslims. Um, almsgiving, regular giving of money to those in need. Uh, fasting uh, during Ramadan is number four. And a pilgrimage to Mecca once in someone's lifetime. I know that's a crude overview of their five pillars, but that's just a simple presentation. 
But as Islam grew rapidly, uh, they began to take over the cities of, that were once loyal to Christianity in the East. And uh, so these crusades were organized, and the only crusade that actually was successful to liberate Jerusalem was the first crusade. It was the only one that really did anything. Um, there were several attempts to do more, um, but um, they, they really were unsuccessful and unfruitful. Um, they were a way to, to organize the church in the West to try to centralize power even more concretely in the Pope, as well as the, as the savior of the empire. And uh, crusade, the word crusade actually comes from the old French term crosse, which means uh, the sign with the cross. And uh, you might see old pictures of, of knights and their shields and whatnot, but they would sew on to their breast area a, a cross. And that was the, these were the crusaders. These were the ones that were going out to liberate uh, Jerusalem. And uh, there were a lot of atrocities that occurred during that time period, horrible atrocities. Um, in fact, it was during the, uh, the Fourth Crusade, uh, the Western Church went into Constantinople, the headquarters of the Eastern Church, and sacked the city. And that totally destroyed forever the relationship between the East and the Western Church. Um, and, I, and I tell you, uh, very brutal things were done to women. Um, it, was not a, it was not a good time period uh, in our, 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 the history of the church. But it is something that we need to be aware of. Yes? Yes. Yeah, in the first, the first crusade... Um, they went in and, and butchered a lot of Jews that were still living in, in Jerusalem as well. It was terrible, terrible situation that occurred. Um, uh, there were even, have you heard of the Children's Crusade? There were even a lot of like poverty-stricken families that couldn't even take care of children. And there's, you can read about it, their children, like young elementary school kids, decided that they would go on the crusade and try to liberate uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, and um, many of them died along the way, marching through through Europe um, on their way east. Um, very tragic time period. But there were other things that were going on. Um, there was doctrinal development that was taking place in the West, and I want to just touch base on three three important figures that that also. Some of their writings have influence into the Reformation. And uh, that is, in particular, uh, Anselm of Canterbury. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. But he, he didn't originally start out as English. He was uh, Italian. And uh, in the far northwest of Italy, near the Swiss border, he was born. And um, he... Uh, through education in France, began to become acquainted with the languages, and he is well known for his writings in which he articulates what's called the ontological argument for God's existence. Uh, the, that's the, that, maybe you would know it more this way. If you can think of anything greater 
than God, then that is actually God. Like there, God is the greatest thing that you could possibly even think of. And he used this as an argument to say, because we have a sense within ourselves that there is a higher power, the fact that alone is an indication that there is one. And uh, he's pretty well known for that. He, he wrote that in Proslogion. And, uh, but his most important work is a book called, it's a funny title, Curdeus Homo, uh, which just simply means why God became a man. And uh, in this, you can see the Western fascination with debt and repayment and atonement and restoration and satisfaction. And as he wrote, he argued that um, it would be absolutely impossible that any person could be saved without Christ coming as a God-man. And he argued that the essence of sin is of such significant uh, dishonor to God's personal honor and glory, there needed to be some sort of repayment to make it right again. And that resonates a lot with us as Western thinkers. And he said that the only way that this could be, an atonement could be created is through a God-man being a substitute to provide the kind of satisfaction that would be needed to permit forgiveness to occur. And as he made this argument, he made some very strong arguments for the deity of Christ. And uh, he had a couple of errors in the final chapters of it in which he started to lay seeds for super irrigation in which God's Christ's righteousness is so great, it's even greater and there's a treasure chest that's stored in heaven. And the Pope eventually is the one who can dispense the righteousness of Christ to others. He was doing really well until he got to that point. <laughs> um, and this, this is largely uh, becomes influential in someone like Thomas Aquinas, which we'll mention in just a moment. But Bernard of Clairvaux um, is another uh, as I had already mentioned, he, he was a founder of uh, the, Sister, the Sisterson Order of Monks. And uh, one of his major works is called On Loving God. A very practical book where he takes time to, to argue that the reason we ought to love God is because he's altogether lovely. There is nothing else in the world that compares with God himself. He is worthy of our love. And he went on to define different kinds of love. And he talked about how um, there is within all of us a desire to love ourselves. What's called self-love. And we love ourselves for our own sake, and that's somewhat natural, but there's another kind of love in which a person loves God for his own advantage. There is a tendency to use God. We can have an artificial kind of love for God, which we love him because we want to use him for the benefits that we'll get from him. And that's one kind of love. But there's another kind of love in which a person loves God because God is, is good, not simply because God is good to him. It's just that God is good and it is worth loving. 
But the final degree of love he described, he, he, he admits, this is almost impossible to, to gain in this lifetime, is where you just completely give up yourself completely to God because he is worth being celebrated because of who he is without any consideration for yourself. And so he, he, worked, he, he worked on this work, and uh, it does become something influential uh, in, in later Christianity. Last person I'll talk about here is Thomas Aquinas, who was a Dominican. Um, his, his family wanted him to go to law school, and uh, his story is very unique. He, he didn't want to go to law school. He said, I, I'd rather be a teacher and a preacher, and so I'd rather go and join the Dominicans. Well, his family kidnapped him and stuck him in a, st- stuck him in a, uh, a, a, a castle that they owned, and they attempted to seduce him with a prostitute in order to disqualify him uh, to be able to enter into the Dominicans. He overcame that temptation, and uh, he resisted, and he told her to leave and go away. Uh, family, finally, the family said, this isn't going to work out. So they've engineered a, an escape route for him, and someone secondary to the family said, here's a way you can get out. And he got out, and he joined the monastery. Uh, he, uh, he was actually a very portly man in his later years. Um, uh, he was sometimes called the dumb ox because he was very quiet, and he was as big as an ox. And uh, that's his nickname. But he, um, he, he wrote, um, his greatest work was called the um, um, Summa Theologica, which is a massive work in which he tries to work through arguments of reason and make, make the arguments of Aristotle in essence and substance agree with Scripture. And uh, he, he wasn't always successful, um, but he developed significant arguments for the existence of God, but his major problem and flaw was that he introduced sacerdotalism into the Catholic Church, uh, largely due to Anselm's work in which God, through Christ, has a treasure chest of Christ's righteousness that can be dispensed to the people. And he said that when you participate in the Mass, you gain, you gain this righteousness as it's being dispensed to you from the church. And he, he developed that uh, along the sacraments so that people began to be looking to participate in these events for the graces that they would receive from the church. And so these things will become real points of contention as we get to the Reformation, as, uh, as we get to Martin Luther, and you might remember some of, of what goes on there. But a lot of mixture of, of truth and error with these people, uh, and it's just good to be aware of them. Thanks for sticking around to talk uh, church history with me today. Thank you again for coming, and uh, God bless you. you have-